Everything's all fucked up. Everything's all fucked up. Everything's all fucked up. Everything's fucked up. Everything's fucked up. Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one, fire. Sorry, I saw a video about ASMR and went with it. Welcome to the podcast dedicated to frightening, delighting, and eroticizing you with books. This is Elton Reads a Book a Week. I am Elton, and I read a book a week. And what a week it's been. Twists and turns, dishwashing, vacuuming, arguing online, buying more books I don't need. I came close to getting drunk. I cried, laughed, washed my ass. The highlight? Finding old Doctor Who episodes online. That's right. I'm exactly that sad. It's quantifiable by episode count. Self-deprecating again. Fucking shit. Speaking of that, if you like this podcast and wish to contribute to it, which I wish you would, you can do that through Patreon. By contributing, you directly help the podcast grow and become one with it. That was weird, huh? I mean, you talk with me and message me directly... It's the only place I do that. You can help me choose books from my piles, discuss the struggles of existence, maybe even high-five, who knows? I haven't set that level yet, but it's in the works. You can also follow me on Elton Reads a Book a Week, the Facebook page, uh, and Twitter, and Instagram as well. All of which can be found by searching for Elton Reads a Book a Week, all one word. That's always pleasant. Oh, and this podcast is also available on iTunes. Google Play, Stitcher, and of course, SoundCloud. So there's that too. Nice, right? I wasn't sure how to approach this episode. The books I've read before, uh, one was a biography, the other was a nonfiction book about the world economy. So with this one, I had to figure out how much to go on about it and what to leave out. It was weird and got me bogged down in the minutiae. I'm easily inspired to nitpick myself to a slow crawl. I hope you forgive me. I think I have it figured out now. I mean, fingers crossed, you know. Uh, This week's book is called The Spy by James Fenimore Cooper. It is his second novel, um, and it was published in 1821. This book is available for free as an e-book, but I read, as I always do, a bulky real-life book full of pages, dust, and stupid words. Add in the fact that I also paid for a book that's free, and you have insight into the intellect currently playing around in my noggin. Also, I should mention... That while they share the same name, this book has nothing to do with the Netflix show The Spy, starring Sasha Baron Cohen. That's right, the guy who made that funny movie playing an anti-Semitic guy, along with three terrible ones playing other anti-Semitic guys. He's now the star of a drama about an Israeli spy. There's irony in there somewhere. I've been paid no money to say that, but I would like it noted that I am open to accepting money of any sort, blood or otherwise, for the mention of a product, service, or copyrighted work. Because of anything, I am a product-pimping money addict. Ain't that the fucking truth. But, uh, how's that for casting, though, right? I mean, he did the voice of a car, and uh, he was an asshole, ring-tailed lemur, if you remember that. And uh, he was the villain in a movie about NASCAR drivers. So just so we're clear, even if this spy show totally fucking sucks... 
the universe is still sending out a pretty clear signal that there's something to this whole failing upward shit we've been hearing about. It'll be an okay show. I'm just bitter. You know the old saying, one man's success is another nail in the coffin of my self-worth. This book, not the show, is set during the Revolutionary War in October 1780. The place? Westchester County. That's New York Westchester, not one of the thousands of other Westchesters that the book had to clarify. So there were a shitload of Westchesters in 1821. And not one fucking North Chester, or maybe even a Southeast Chester? I mean, get outside the box, folks. There's more than one Chester. Or at least there should be. Anyway, this was the so-called neutral ground during the Revolutionary War. A sort of no-man's land between the rebellious Continental Army lines and the British. The whole thing was located right next door to the Bronx. They only knew, right? Uh, what the fuck do I know about New York, other than I've never been there? I'm just going off of all the shitty Bronx notions that were fed to me by pop culture through the years. They call a fart a Bronx cheer for fuck's sake. If that's not insinuating shit, I don't know what is. I've been living in PA for fucking ever. I've never even been to New York. I know. I'll get there eventually. Maybe go and sightsee. What's really holding me back? Large crowds scare the shit out of me. I've seen enough New York movies to know that the whole place is one large surging sea of assholes. One big-ass, breathing, touching, germing, coughing, human-grinding death sentence. Plus, they steal your wallet. The story takes place at a house-slash-estate-slash-summer-home thing in Westchester County called The Locusts. It's a weird name. The locale is beautiful when it isn't war-torn with smoldering house fires, I guess. Late in the afternoon of a rainy autumn day, two strangers seek shelter and accommodations for the night at the Locusts. Unknown at first to each other, they stay for the night with Mr. Wharton and his daughters. The travelers are George Washington dressed in civilian everyday clothes, going under the name Mr. Harper, and Captain Henry Wharton, who's so thoroughly disguised not even his own family recognize him. Washington, by the way, is in disguise because he's kind of staking out the area, you know, as a scout kind of thing. Henry, it turns out, uh, was disguised and made it through the uh, Continental Pickets um, so he could hang out at home for a little bit, a little home visit. Early the next morning, a third visitor arrives at the Locust. He's a Yankee pack peddler named Harvey Birch, who, with his father and their housekeeper, Katie Haynes, lives in a small house down the road. Using the cover of his former occupation, Harvey is, in reality, now a spy and counter-spy in the service of Washington. And the two men silently recognize each other, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod kind of thing on the down low uh, when he gets to the house. Harvey sells some stuff to the uh, two sisters that are there. And then uh, he leaves them all to their breakfast. Washington takes off, but not before discovering uh, the sun in disguise. Everyone figuratively shits their pants. Washington assures the kid and his family that he's not going to rat them out. Then, all is right with the world. That is, until that damn peddler showed up. But, oh, in case you didn't know, a peddler is a person who actually goes house to house selling things. At least they did back then. You know, actually, until I read this book, I never thought about that. I understood that most things were made by hand back then, and by people, and families, and whatnot. But I never thought about where they got the material. As it happens, door-to-door salesmen. Who knew? Anyway, 
Ah, uh, I forgot to tell you about the daughters. The Wharton family, who lives at the Locust, is divided in its sympathies during the uh, War of Independence. The son, Henry, he's the guy in disguise. He's a British officer. The uh, eldest daughter is Sarah. She's uh, loyal to the crown, so to speak, while her younger sister, Frances, loves America. She's outspoken in the cause of her country. The next day, Harper, a.k.a. Big Daddy Washington, and Harvey the Peddler head out into the wild blue New York. All is once again swell. It turns out that Frances, the youngest daughter, is in love with a rebel, the commanding officer of the Virginia Dragoons, a Major Peyton Dunwoody, a man who's also a boyhood chum of her British soldiering brother. The plot thickens. Soon the Dragoons show up, looking for Harvey Birch, who lives up the road. They make their way to the Locust, the Wharton house. They knock and walk in, intending to uh, ask about the uh, salesman guy. But instead, they find Henry, a British officer. Rebels uh, finding a British officer during wartime, especially when you're fighting the British, shit doesn't go well. So they capture him, and as it turns out, they leave it up to Major Dunwoody. Isn't that convenient? The conflict between love and loyalty in the novel becomes even more involved when the Virginia Dragoons are attacked by a British troop led by Colonel Wellmere. He's a suitor for the uh, hand of Sarah Wharton. She's the older sister, remember? Of course, calamity ensues, a battle happens, and the British are taken down. They limp off to a ship on the river, while the uh, Continental Rebels roam the countryside looking for rebellious things, I don't know, when they come across Harvey. They don't know he's a spy that works for them, so they shoot at him 50 times. Still, he manages to escape, but he wounds the leader of the guys trying to kill him. That guy manages to get back to the Locusts, and he's attended to by the weirdest fucking doctor in all of book history. His name is George Singleton, who at one point says, I never had success but once replacing a man's brains, although I have tried three times this very day. Once? I wish that brain damaged guy was in the story more. I don't know how you'd write dialogue for someone who drools and is constantly interrupted with shitting himself, but I think it would be very entertaining. After escaping, Harvey dodges the dragoons and makes his way home to tend to his ailing father, Johnny Birch. Harvey's final conversation with his dying father is interrupted by a band of skinners. They are, uh, they're kind of soldiers who are commissioned to forage for uh, the Patriot forces, but who abuse the shit out of their authority and plunder the countryside for their own profit. They intended to loot Harvey's uh, stock of merchandise and extort from him uh, all the gold he's accumulated, and then deliver his ass to the American command for the reward posted for his capture. He tells them where his money is so he can buy a moment or two with his dying dad. They then mistake his dad for a ghost because he's wrapped in a sheet and haul ass out of the house like Scooby and Shaggy. Because as we all learned in history class, people who lived through the Revolutionary War were easily spooked by sick people in sheets. After burying his father, Harvey sells his house for pretty cheap, and then he tells his crabby housekeeper slash would-be wife to fuck off. And then he's promptly caught by the Skinners again. Because I guess back then there wasn't a very stringent training program for spies that taught things like how not to be caught by the fucking enemy. Maybe it was a funding problem. Regardless, they also burned down his old house. Things are not looking up for old Harvey the Wonder Spy. Meanwhile, back at the Locusts, the youngest Wharton sister, Frances, discovers the uh, sister of a soldier currently being seen there is also in love with Major Dunwoody. 
So what the fuck do they do about it? Fisticuffs? Beat the shit out of each other? Bitch, you ain't taking my man, no. The two girls collapse cheerfully in each other's arms because... Fuck that bitch, am I right? Times were different. Women cried a lot. Now, back to Spymaster Harvey. He's carted off to a makeshift bar, sold back to the Continental Regulars and slash Rebels for 50 guineas. I did a little investigating, and as it turns out, guineas aren't used as a form of currency anymore. Not since uh, British currency was decimalized on the uh, 15th of February, 1971. You can write that down if you want. It's meaningless. The guinea was no longer... Uh, the guinea has no longer been used as a legal tender since then. So if you go by melt value, 50 guineas amounts to about $16,343.86 today. Not a bad haul for turning in an idiot who can't help but be caught. And uh, all the people that turned him in, they got 39 lashings apiece for burning and looting shit. Fair trade-off? You decide. Though Harvey doesn't make out well, he's condemned to hang by Dunwoody. So, poor bastard, right? Though, Double O Harvey, though, has a few tricks up his sleeve, one of which is imitating the Irish accent of the lady who runs the bar. He steals some clothes and escapes, but not before scaring the shit out of Skinner's camping nearby. Later, he perches on a rock above a path and surprises Dunwoody, claims he's acting on approval from a higher authority, warns him to double his guard on his lines and his loved ones, before firing a musket in the air and disappearing before the smoke clears, like a fucking ninja. Like a loud, easily caught, no martial arts skill heaven musket firing ninja. The whole situation weirds the major out, thinks he's tripping out and shit, and he returns to camp to find Harvey had indeed escaped. When everyone tries to sort things out, there are talks of Harvey being Satan and body swapping. So from here, Harvey Birch becomes a legend that assumes supernatural dimension. Legendary status was uh, easily attained in a nation of roughly 2.5 million people. Fake an accent, steal some clothes, escape inept guards, fire a gun into the air and disappear in the smoke. Boom! Legend. Dunwoody gives the man some respect by following his advice, though, and uh, reinforces he also remembers the whole protect your loved ones thing and heads over to the Locusts, where he finds the young Wharton British soldier kid being carted off to prison and his girl in tears as she thinks he's lied to her about the other girl. She tells him she's come to terms with that shit and breaks off their relationship and breaks his fucking heart. There's nothing quite like breaking up with a soldier face to face literally during wartime. Revolutionary girls roll hard like that. Later, while Lawton, a sergeant serving under Dunwoody, and the twisted surgeon I was talking about earlier, are riding toward the house, they find a big-ass rock blocking their way, with a note tied to it warning travelers that they're exposing themselves to more dangerous weapons than just stones. Lawton recognizes it as the uh, work of Magic Man Harvey. Back at the Locusts, a wedding's taking place between the older sister Sarah and a guy named Colonel Wedmere. It's delayed due to the bride not having a ring, how I got that far without a ring? Who knows? Blame it on the revolution. The weird doctor offers up a ring formerly belonging to his sister, Anna. They send their manservant slash slave, maybe? Name, uh, his name is Caesar. To, uh, they send him to the Doc's hotel to get it. While he's there, he runs into a few people and the bar. He's getting tipsy when clandestine Harvey shows up. He tells a soldier or two that they're needed back at the ranch or house. Or whatever the damn locust place is called. Summer home? Doesn't matter. 
Harvey shows up at the wedding later, and shit gets out of hand. Skinner show up, everything's in a tizzy, and boom! Fire. Everything catches on fucking fire in old school books about war. Doesn't the whole town burn down and gone with the wind? There's a lot of drama when it comes to fire. Doubly so when there's not a fire department system in place. Your ship burns to the ground, which is what happens to the locusts. Everyone makes it out, though, and uh, Harvey even saves a now completely crazy Sarah. Though he's not captured as the Lawton guy admires his bravery. So, so now that everyone is homeless, where do they go? The bar, of course. War is hell, but alcohol helps. I'm not going to tell you the ending. I debated whether or not to, but decided against it. Even though the chances of you or anyone else actually reading this book is pretty slim, still, erring on the side of the possibility of you reading it is far, far better than hearing my scaled-down version. So too bad. This book did get me thinking about rewrites of old books. There has to be a market for it. The story's good, but plodding through the older English, it was kind of rough. I think you can get used to it. I mean, I got used to it. But I could see it putting some people off. Now, should every book be redone? Hell no. I wouldn't redo Gone with the Wind. But lesser-known titles that are in the public domain, I mean, seems like fair game. Make some movies, Hollywood, instead of recycling shitty 80s franchises. Well, that'll do it up for this week. I hope you had fun. Don't forget to hit me up on Patreon, the Mighty Mighty Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and all that. I love the company. The internet is such a lonely, cold, and dirty place. Who doesn't like friends, right? Thanks for listening. I'll be here next week. Oh, and read more books, huh? Don't let them die out. Thanks again. Bye.